Welcome to Rehash. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Rehash, a Web3 podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen. And today we're speaking with Dan Romero, founder of Farcaster and Warpcast, all about decentralized social media and everything Dan is doing and building toward a more decentralized future. Dan was nominated by Triumph and voted onto the podcast by Vadrush, Adam Levy, Tim Black, Scott Moore, Meg Lister, Triumph, and an anonymous voter. Before we dive into our conversation, here's a quick word from the Web3 projects that helped make this season possible. Social media wasn't designed for ads and algorithms. It was made for people. And at Lens Protocol, we're putting people back in control. We're not looking for users' data. We're here to build a community of collaborators. Builders, artists, and dreamers ready to unlock a new world of social media. This isn't just an app. It's a flourishing ecosystem of platforms and experiences owned and operated by the developers and creators who are bringing it to life. In the Lensverse, you don't just own your content. You own everything. Your data, your connections, the value you bring to the table. It all stays in your possession, exactly where it should be. As a creator, the Lens ecosystem offers a new set of tools for connecting with your audience. Your data is truly portable and belongs to you. Post once and distribute everywhere in the Lensverse. You can even take your followers with you from app to app. As a developer, you can skip right past building the base layers and scaling your users by plugging your new app directly into Lens's existing infrastructure and community. So whether you create with a brush or a camera, sound waves or lines of code, it's time you got your due. Come create the future of social media with us on Lens Protocol. Lens is the last social media handle you'll ever need. Have you seen how epic Ambire Wallet is? How epic it is? Yeah. Cue the music. Ambire is a Web3 wallet that makes crypto self-custody easy and secure for everyone. Instead of relying on clunky seed phrases, you can create an account with the hardware wallet or username and password, secure it with two-factor authentication, and regain access with Ambire's cloud recovery. Need to pay out some contributors or execute a bunch of trades? No problem, chief. Queue up as many transactions as you want, and when you're ready, execute the entire batch at the same time, paying gas only once. You can even prepay for gas with stablecoins or Ambire's native wallet token, which will get you some cash back. Without ever leaving the Ambire interface, you can manage assets from over a dozen chains, safely migrate them with Ambire's built-in bridge, and seamlessly interact with apps like Uniswap, Aave, and Snapshot, all within the same transaction. Plus, Ambire is constantly growing their DAP catalog with trusted partners and collaborating with builders who want to establish the new standard for smart contract wallets. So, pretty epic, huh? Yeah, I already know all that though. I've had an Ambire wallet for months. And you didn't tell me? You never asked. To get involved and truly own your assets, go to ambire.com. How was your day? Bad. What happened? I bought some NFTs and then they just disappeared. Sounds like your NFT creator should have used NFT.storage. NFT.what? NFT.storage. Come on, I'll show you. With NFT.storage, anyone can easily upload their NFT data to a decentralized and reliable storage network completely for free. Wow. How does it work? Well, instead of relying on centralized and impermanent storage solutions, NFT.storage uploads your files to IPFS and Filecoin. 
These are powerful peer-to-peer -peer networks that are made for the decentralized web. Thanks to IPFS's unique storage system, you can be confident that once your files are uploaded, they'll be accessible from anywhere in the world for as long as you'd like. They're already trusted by some of the biggest names in Web3, like OpenSea, Magic Eden, and Rarible. By adding files to these networks for free, NFT.Storage is helping to turn proper NFT data management into a public good. This will ensure that NFTs will remain accessible and secure in the long run, so you won't get rugged again. Gee, so I just upload my files and NFT.Storage will take care of the rest? Now you're getting it. Go to NFT.Storage today to upload some NFT data of your own for free. And be sure to follow NFT.Storage on Twitter at NFTDOTStorage. So without further ado, here is our guest, Dan Romero. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Awesome. You are one of the biggest names in decentralized social. When people think about that, they immediately think about you and they think about Farcaster and Warpcast now. But before we get into all of that, I kind of just want to pick your brain a little bit about decentralized social, about how we even got to this place that we're at now, having all of these things that we don't like about Web2 social and trying to build something better. So take us back all the way to the beginning. How did we get here to this very centralized, ad-driven social media model where users are the product instead of the product being the product? So I think it's helpful to just go back to the beginning of the web, so Web1. And to think about that a lot of what was being built was being built on top of open protocols, specifically, you know, HTTP and, and the web. So you have Netscape, web browsers, and then all the kind of like first web 1.0, .com, boom, websites, right? So completely permissionless platform. You, you register a domain, you can build whatever you want on that domain. So whether that's eBay or Amazon, it could be, you know, on the e-commerce side, but you could also put up a blog or, or whatever you want to do. Email is another example from that era, right? So everyone can go sign up, again, with a domain, and you can get an email address. And for the average consumer, they ended up doing that through Gmail or Hotmail. But ultimately, all email is built on top of a credibly neutral protocol called SMTP. Web 2 comes along in the kind of like early aughts. And what it does really well is it increases the total number of people who are actually publishing stuff online, right? Like UGC was the term, user-generated content. And so you had all these new apps and services, and then, then mobile made it even easier, where someone who, during the Web 1 era, if they had to register a domain and get a web host in order to put up a website, now you could just kind of go and sign up for Tumblr or you know Twitter, and, and then you could actually start kind of posting pretty easily and, and get your message out there. So you had a massive increase in the total amount of people using the internet for publishing and, and user-generated content. But as a result, you had a lot of these networks get really, really large and they developed network effects and they were able to start kind of changing the kind of rules is the wrong term, but just kind of changing how they operated. So a good example, Twitter. Twitter in the early days was actually a very developer-friendly platform. They had like a very open API. Most of the early mobile apps for Twitter were actually built by third-party developers. And then around 2014, 2015, Twitter thinking about going public, decided that, hey, we're actually going to severely limit what can be done via the API and, and kind of forced everyone on to the kind of default Twitter-owned Twitter client because that was better for monetization. And so I think that across the board with Web2, you started kind of with this, the, still the idealistic vision of Web1 and with this kind of convenience, ease of use. But fast forward to kind of 2020, 
all of these networks were kind of at scale. And within a 10-year period, we went from, you know, people joking about, like, why would you use Twitter? Like, no one cares about what you're having for lunch to Twitter's an existential threat to democracy. It needs to be regulated, you know, dragging these people in front of Congress. And so I think the challenge for where we are now, and, and the term Web3 is always gets people really upset, it feels like, because everyone has a different definition for it. But the, what I think is the opportunity for Web3 right now is you can take the foundation of, of Web1, which are these open protocols, and the ease of use and convenience that kind of Web2 pioneered, especially on mobile, and can you kind of bring those two back together in some sort of harmony where you have the kind of ownership and freedom and, and choice that Web1 provides with that kind of what we've come to expect, like really high quality user experience of, of Web2. That's kind of the dream for, I would say, Web3 social. And there are a bunch of different ways of, of approaching that. Farcaster is one of those. Would you say that the original intentions of Web1 are very similar to the intentions we have now with what we're trying to build with Web3? Intentions is always a little hard because, you know, A, it's historical, so hard to know what people were thinking exactly at the time outside of asking someone, right? Maybe Mark Andreessen could have told you what he was thinking in 1993 when he was working on Mosaic, and which eventually became Netscape. I think the way these neutral protocols work in, in practice is actually the, the thing that I'm most excited about from uh, wh where we can take things with a decentralized you know, social networking protocol. Because we know what permissionless innovation did for the web, right? Like Airbnb didn't have to get approval to launch Airbnb, right? Whereas if you think about like the paradigm that we live under in the mobile ecosystem today, Apple can decide whether an app can exist or not, right? And so we see a lot of this today with crypto apps on the iPhone, you know, really restrictive rules around NFTs, like you can't even link to OpenSea. And so I think what I would like to, to kind of see is the world shift back a little bit more towards just how things operated with the web and, and, and frankly continue to operate with the web today, but have that both expand at the kind of like application development layer. So having that exist on the mobile platforms, which that's not even a Web3 thing, that's maybe some policy change at the federal government level. But then as it relates to social networks, figuring out a way to take these kind of network effects that exist in these siloed centralized companies and move them more towards a protocol, which is credibly neutral. And that as a kind of user, I have the freedom to move between different applications and not have to worry about my audience being locked into one silo. And then as a developer, if I choose to build an application, the relationship I have with my application is between me and my users, not like some third party that can kind of revoke access. You know, we just saw this with Twitter, right? So I had mentioned before, there was a vibrant third party ecosystem in the early 2010s for Twitter. They kind of hamstrung that starting 2014, 2015. But then there were still apps that existed for almost a decade, even in that hamstrung state, that a couple of weeks ago, new ownership of Twitter, they decided the API is no longer a priority and they just got cut off. And so if you actually build a protocol-based social network, that should never be able to happen. And, and so I think that, that that's a big aspiration for where we're headed. Okay, so I want to dissect that a little bit, and you, you've already started getting into this, but just to take a step back, if you were to dissect the Twitter product bundle as it stands today, what are the primary elements that you would find there? And then I, I would love if you could also sort of compare and contrast that to a decentralized social product bundle and the elements that you would expect to find there. So I think that the core feature of Twitter is distribution. Anyone who tells you anything otherwise, like, oh, it's a social network, it's a... It, it, the reality is 
if I have a message that I want to get out into the world and I have an audience, the best place in the world to do that is on Twitter, right? It's very simple. You, just, you can do it right on your phone. There's no video pre-production or all, all the stuff that's overhead of something like YouTube or even TikTok. Maybe Instagram with just like being able to snap a photo is, is basically as easy. But those are the t- kind of two platforms where I think is like anyone who just has an audience can get a message out to that audience as fast as possible. And I think Twitter, that's the kind of core thing it provides. It wasn't necessarily that at the beginning, but that's what it's kind of evolved into. So the, the idea that I, if I have a large audience, I can get it instantly distributed to that audience on their phones in a real-time manner, that, that that's the core of what Twitter provides. That said, there's a bunch of other things bundled with that. So there's an identity system, right? Your your username on Twitter belongs to Twitter. You might build a lot of affinity around that name, and, and people might refer to you by your kind of Twitter handle. Like, obviously, on TV, they always kind of have it. But that can be taken by any point. Another thing that Twitter is obviously providing you, especially in a world where there aren't third-party clients, is that they provide you with your feed. So as a, as a user consuming content on Twitter, they kind of dictate what you're going to see in addition to any of the moderation decisions that they make. And the other point being is that hosting of the actual content exists on Twitter servers. So all of that kind of comes down to is you have to use Twitter and their terms of service and their set of rules if you want to access the distribution of Twitter. And contrast that to something like email, where if I have an email newsletter, let's say I have 100,000 subscribers for my email newsletter, I don't have to use any one email provider, right? I can actually shift between MailChimp and Substack pretty seamlessly, especially if you have your own domain, because then the end user doesn't even know you're sending it from a different service. It's kind of this plumbing in the background. That doesn't exist for Web2 Social, right? So if you, if you want to access the Twitter distribution that you've built, you have to use Twitter, and Twitter can decide if you have access to that distribution on a whim, can remove you. There's no recourse. Can't go argue in court, hey, I deserve my Twitter account back. YouTube, same thing. Instagram, the same thing. And so I think that that bundle is unfortunate in that if you can separate out the different elements and you as the both the kind of like publisher creator, you know, trying to speak to your audience and or the user have the ability to choose different tools, whether it's like, okay, if I'm actually using Twitter for kind of like work, I might want to use a more power user tool that has all these bells and whistle features and analytics. Whereas an average user, maybe you know, I'm just consuming, I probably want to something that's a little simpler, maybe more algorithmic. And so the ability to get to a world where you're not forced to use any one solution and you can easily change between different applications based on the use case and, and kind of like what you're hoping to accomplish, that's what we're trying to achieve with Farcaster and, and, and fundamentally something different than Twitter, which to be fair to Twitter, in the early days of Twitter was actually very close to that, right? It was a centralized company and, and Paul Graham actually has a great essay, 2009, you just Google Paul Graham Twitter and it's very short, but he specifically talks about how Twitter is kind of, it should be a protocol, but somehow it ended up within a company. And in in that early era, it, it felt like more like a protocol because of the open APIs, because of the fact that they were encouraging people to kind of experiment and innovate with the access to the data. But, you know, 10 years later, it, we're in a very, very different place. You raise a good point. I think that's something that actually a lot of people still struggle to understand is the difference between a protocol and an app. So Twitter, as it stands today, is an app. Farcaster is a decentralized social protocol. And then Warpcast is this like Twitter-like app that is built on top of the Farcaster protocol. 
correct? Yeah. You know, we just recently rebranded. So I think when we originally started out, my co-founder and I, we kind of wanted to just keep things simple. So Farcaster was the protocol and the app that you were using because no one else was built, interested in building anything on top of Farcaster, the protocol. So it was actually pretty easy. It was just like, oh, download Farcaster and you can also use the protocol. We're now at a place where there are actually multiple teams and individuals building within the, the Farcaster ecosystem. And so they have different names for their apps. And we felt like, it was the best long-term decision for the protocol to actually separate the name of the app that our team is building. And so we renamed it from Farcaster. So you can almost think it was like the official Farcaster app to Warpcast. And the, the analogy I always use is if you think about email, there is no official email app. Most people use Gmail, at least in the US. But I think that that's kind of clear to people that email and Gmail are two different things, right? And then within Ethereum, the basic example here is there's Ethereum and then there's MetaMask, right? It's, it's not like the official Ethereum wallet, even though MetaMask kind of is, is tied in with consensus, which, which is kind of in the early days of Ethereum, pretty pretty involved. And so in our case, Farcaster, Warpcast, it, it'll continue to be painful for a while, especially for people who kind of like first onboarded where they like thought Farcaster, Farcaster. But I think in the long run, it'll just create a healthier ecosystem for the protocol that the protocol is this neutral thing and you're one of many apps built on top of it. Yeah, I totally agree. I want to go back to the beginning days of Farcaster. You actually first had the idea for Farcaster as this RSS plus is what you called it. And you've got an article about this up on your website that people can go and read. But I would love to hear you talk about that original idea, how that came about, and how it has shifted over time and morphed into what is today Farcaster. So I've been a big user of RSS and Twitter for you know 15 plus years. And when Google shut down Google Reader, for those on the audience that don't know what Google Reader was, so RSS is a protocol. It's uh, very simple. It it's allows you, whether it's a blog or even today, podcasts are actually powered by RSS, is just to kind of syndicate out content over the internet and, and you can kind of consume an RSS feed and then show it in any UI you want. In the early 2010s, there was a product from Google called Google Reader and it was incredibly popular. It was actually almost too popular because they didn't charge any money for it. So it made the, the market for like kind of like premium RSS readers hard to monetize because Google was giving something away for free. But I think the kind of like flaw in RSS at the time, it was like pretty competitive with Twitter in terms of like the way you would consume news or information is that RSS is, is not as well suited or at least how RSS readers were designed to mobile. And so Twitter... And especially kind of the, that third-party ecosystem of third-party apps for Twitter kind of really pioneered this like core, like mobile UX of, of the feed. And in doing so, I think outcompeted RSS in, at that time for kind of being the primary way to, if, if you're like kind of an infovore or just really want to know what's happening in the world, better to use a Twitter feed with you know, and they didn't even really have an algo at that point, but, you know, Twitter feed with like the retweets and, and you know, following a diverse set of sources than using kind of like an RSS reader. And so over the last 10 years, RSS has effectively withered away. It still has plenty of like power user folks who are, who are using it, but like compared to the number of people who are using something like Twitter, you know, it's, it's pretty minuscule. But what's powerful about RSS is it's a permissionless protocol, right? So if I put up an RSS feed on my website, I, I have one on my blog, anyone can use that as a standard kind of API for consuming content that is like newly posted to the blog and then can do whatever they want with it, right? There's no API key required. It's, it's kind of this public standardized format. And so I think what we 
you know, Vernon and I, having both worked at Coinbase for five years, saw the power of permissionless protocols like Bitcoin and Ethereum within crypto and kind of said, well, what can we do to improve the kind of like mobile experience for a permissionless protocol like RSS? And so that kind of made us do two things. So the first is we actually built the initial client for Forecaster because our point of view is we could come up with like the most brilliant technical spec in the world. But if you didn't have someone actually building it uh, like an actual app with users on top of it, it's kind of like a science experiment. It's like, who cares? And so we actually started by wanting to build like, okay, how, how can we actually build like a consumer app that that is as easy to use as Twitter? And so Warpcast is, is now what we call that. It, it yeah, it's pretty close. I, I don't say it's 100% as good as Twitter, but we've made a lot of progress over the last couple of years. And then the, the second thing is, how can you build a kind of protocol that has the best features of RSS, right? The simplicity, the permissionlessness with the best kind of UX and, and features of Twitter, which is the kind of like instant real-time feedback, right? So really basic example. If I use RSS today and someone reads my blog post, there basically is no indication that you read that post, right? Like I, someone would have to send me an email and say, I, I really liked your blog post. Whereas if I post something on Twitter, put view counts to the side for a second, just just the fact that people can instantly reply while they're reading what, what is being said in addition to the ability to like or, or retweet, that's pretty powerful. And so bringing those kind of like standard interactions from kind of like someone consuming content and kind of coupling that together I think is is really important, but doing so in a decentralized way that that allows you to kind of accomplish the permissionlessness of RSS. And so it's like take the interactivity and speed of Twitter mixed with the kind of like simplicity and permissionlessness of RSS, and, and that that's basically Farcaster. Gotcha. You just reminded me of an article talking about your co-founder Varun that he wrote about sufficient decentralization as applied to social networks. And it's this idea that, you know, maybe what we're going after isn't full decentralization. Maybe that that isn't the answer to all of our problems. But what we should be focused on instead is sufficient decentralization. In your mind, like, what is the difference between the two as applied to this decentralized social context? I just love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so one way to think about it is you have centralized social networks, what we kind of have today, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. And then you have kind of like maximally decentralized social networks where it's like everyone's running their own server and you are kind of king of your own castle with that and you can kind of like integrate with, with everything else. And then between those two points of the spectrum, you reach some level of more centralized or, or, you know, more decentralized. And so our point of view is if you actually start with centralized, because that's the thing that's won from a total number of people using it and user experience standpoint, and work your way towards decentralization, at some point you reach what we would say, it's not, a, it's more art than science, but it's, it's kind of a sufficient decentralization for the design of your social network, where you can optimize for certain things being decentralized and other ones you, you don't necessarily care as the average user or even as a developer or or kind of like a big creator with a, with a large audience. And so I think it's always useful to use analogies from other protocols. Email is a great example of this. The average person uses email in a, an extremely centralized way. They use a Gmail account. They don't even own their own name, right? Like if you have, you know, whatever your email at Gmail, Google can take that away at any point. It's actually kind of scary to think about like if your entire life is around a Gmail account and you got shut off from Google for whatever reason, 
there is no recourse again to for you to be able to go to court and say, hey, I need access to that email, like my financial accounts and everything are tied there. Whereas if you had your own domain and you're using G Suite and Google decided to kick you off, you could actually just then change your DNS records and, and switch over to, you know, Fastmail or, or Microsoft Outlook or, or, or whatever other provider in email world. And, and the same example, uh, by the way, is Substack MailChimp, right? Like if I, if I have an email newsletter, I can easily change different providers. And so I think what we wanted to kind of make a bet on is the average user is going to use a massively large centralized at, at, at scale simple, easy to use service that plugs into a wider ecosystem of a bunch of, you know, different other providers and, and varying degrees of, you know, do it yourself or, or kind of other competing centralized providers. And the thing that we wanted to make sure that was decentralized is the actual identifier, right? The way to find you on the network, in this case, the username is the thing that you actually want to be able to have be completely portable, right? And if that is tied to where you sign up, it actually, I think, gets really tricky because if, you know, I use a domain name-based system and someone else owns the domain name, like the Gmail example, yeah, it's, it's, it's a decentralized or, or kind of like network that you can use different providers. But if your identity is actually tied up with that provider, the likelihood of you being able to move to a different service is, is, is pretty low. And so they actually have a lot more power over you. And I think that that is something that I learned at Coinbase, where one thing that's really powerful, Coinbase lives in an, in an environment where at any point, a customer of Coinbase can take their Bitcoin or Ethereum and move it either to their own wallet or to a competitor within a few clicks. And there is no, oh, well, this is special Coinbase Bitcoin or special Coinbase Ethereum. Like, no, it's completely fungible and you can move it to a different provider. And so by virtue of having to live on a network where there is actually full interoperability between other alternatives, Coinbase is forced to earn their customers' trust on an ongoing basis, not because they have some like uh, monopoly in terms of like, uh, like a network effect or thing like that. Whereas if I don't like what Instagram is doing with their client, right? So there was a big kind of recent blow up where Instagram is moving away from photos in the feed to doing more video, tough. Like Instagram's like, you want you want access to the Instagram graph and, and the app? We get to decide. And and there is no other option. I think there was even an app that launched, it was like Instagram OG or something where you could just get photos and it got shut down. And so I think where we're hoping to get to is by making the identity something that you can actually move around the ecosystem pretty easy, you, you've kind of reached the sufficient decentralization where you could still be using any of these large centralized providers, but your ability to kind of like switch to a different provider and seamlessly continue to communicate with your audience, that's for us the thing that you actually really need to nail from a decentralization standpoint. And then arguably, for the average person, the rest of it you want as centralized as possible because usually the centralization means you get better UX, right? But actually still having the ability, the credible ability to exit and then still interoperate with the rest of the ecosystem is the kind of thing that makes the protocol valuable. So basically you want to have, for instance, like whatever my handle is on Twitter, DDW Chen, I want to be able to carry that handle and all of the followers I have on Twitter across all different social platforms. So it would be nice if I just started a YouTube channel for the first time, if I could expose all of my Twitter followers that I had spent the last decade building up to my new YouTube channel or to my new Substack or to my new Instagram or TikTok or, or whatever other social. 
Totally. And and you can kind of do this today in the sense that if you have a big audience on Twitter and you start a new YouTube, you just post a link to your YouTube and, and you slowly recreate. Now, in a world where the kind of like underlying social layer is a protocol, whether it's forecast or something different, then the idea would be you'd try a new app or service and the developer there actually can just kind of permissionlessly pull in all of your other activity and offer you a better first run experience. So I would imagine that that probably increases the likelihood that people stick around in a new app. So it actually benefits the creation of new apps because that that kind of like cold start bootstrapping problem is a little bit easier. It's, it's still not quite solved, right? Like just because you can like interoperate with a bunch of data doesn't mean that you're going to stick around with a new app. But every bit of friction you can remove for someone to attempt a new type of app that has a social component to it, I think is a is an improvement. And in the aggregate, you end up having that much more innovation and attempts at, at, at new apps and services. So for instance, my handle on Warpcast right now, which I believe is Tree Girl, I actually had to change it because I lost my keys to the first one, is going to be the same one when somebody else comes on a Farcaster and builds a new app, maybe like a photo sharing app or maybe a video app or whatever. And I sign up for that app then the people who are following me on Warpcast right now will automatically be following me on those new apps as well. Yeah, if the developer chooses that as the experience, right? They might just say, hey, like we have an algorithmic feed and we're going to use all of your previous casts and likes into our algo to figure out like who you might be interested in. So I think each developer is going to be able to have the freedom to choose what signals they want to use. But I think from a kind of like simplicity for the user, once I have a Farcaster account, right, like if you think about it, and it's decentralized, I can just now use that as the kind of like way I sign up or sign in to any of these other apps. But the important thing is, it's not like it's a single company that's administering the, you know, sign in with Facebook or Twitter is is a centralized thing, right? So if you lose access to your Twitter account, then you can't use that anywhere else. Whereas sign in with Farcaster, because it's the, the identity component is rooted in Ethereum address, means that when I sign up for that new video app, whatever it is, the relationship is between myself and that app, not Warpcast or any of the other apps that I might have started with. And so that sovereign relationship between the developer and, and the user is actually pretty important because that encourages developers to take the additional amount of effort, right? Like building anything is really hard. But building something and then thinking that you could have the terms of service or, or the rug pulled out from underneath you because, you know, you're growing really fast and, and like, they ultimately have the keys to the identity. That just, like, it may have worked 15 years ago when we were first starting out at Web2, but I think developers are pretty sophisticated today and they don't want to be dependent on some third-party platform that can change the rules on them really fast. Yeah, for sure. One common question I hear a lot from people is, what is the difference between Farcaster and Lens or other similar ones, Mastodon, Blue Sky, similarly trying to build these decentralized social protocols? Can you explain from your point of view, like what the major differences are? And maybe they are as similar as people think, but if there are any important differences, could you just clarify that for listeners? Yeah, look, there are a bunch of different people building different implementations of decentralized social protocols. I'm generally of the mind that there's not going to kind of just be one in the same way that you just don't have one blockchain, right? Like you have Bitcoin, you have Ethereum, you have a bunch of other ones. You know, there isn't one browser. There's like, you know, well, browser is actually an interesting example because the web, HTTP, did consolidate around kind of like one single protocol and email being another. But I think the kind of like 
Contrast, though, is in Web 2, right, the, the social networks, we don't have just one social network. It's not like everyone just uses Facebook. And if Facebook hadn't acquired Instagram, arguably, like, it, it would even be less relevant today. And so the social network market, despite having a couple of really, really large ones, is relatively dynamic, right? Like, TikTok didn't exist a few years ago. Twitter, Pinterest, like, th there's actually a lot of pretty at-scale social networks relative to those kind of, like, Web 1 protocols. And so hard to know, like, how things play out in the sense that does it look more like Web 2 where you have multiple or does it look more like Web 1 where you only have, you know, kind of like one or two standard? I'll leave that to an armchair pun to try to figure out. But in terms of, like, how is Farcaster different, I'd say that there's, like, two primary buckets that differentiates how Farcaster is approaching building its protocol relative to maybe some others. So the first is, so this is more for the, like, kind of crypto decentralized social protocols. We have a minimal on-chain footprint. So our point of view is blockchains are great. They are expensive, slow computers that are really good at preventing double spends. Now, are they going to get faster and cheaper over time? Yeah, that's fine. But I think as it relates to building something today, our point of view was if we're going to use a blockchain, like let's actually minimize how much we're using because the goal here is actually to build a social network that people, the yeah, average everyday people can use over the you know next few years. And so our point of view is the thing that the blockchain solves for Farcaster and the reason to actually deal with the cost and the complexity of doing that is that sufficient decentralization of the identity. And our point of view is the moment you start relying on some type of corporation to manage the identity system, consortium to manage it, make the assumption that users are going to sign up and get a domain on their own. I, I, don't, I don't believe that. Like 30 years of history, like people don't buy their own domain names. Like it's a, it's a very, very power user thing. And so from our standpoint, what we wanted to do is make it so that when you sign up on Farcaster, we abstract away the complexity enough that you're going to get a username that feels more like a Web2 username, right? Just like when you sign up for Twitter or Instagram, you get that username. And the complexity of managing that is, is just managed away. And in doing so, I think that that improves the usability, right? Like we're not using the chain for all these posts, right? Like compared to maybe some others that put everything on chain. And then the identity system relative to, and this is the second camp, the, the federated model, which says, I have a server. I'm associating my identity with this server and or this domain. I think that's just from our standpoint, it's, it's too power user, right? Like users don't want to think about servers. They don't want to think about like which handle and the domain that's, that it's associated with. It's actually kind of confusing because now you have like email is a good example. Of this email today would just never exist. It would be an at username system because like that's the simpler version. Email was a kind of like a power user early like 80s internet version of an identity system that that has kind of just stuck around. But if you look at how most mobile apps authenticate, they use a phone number, right? Because it's a simpler experience for users. And none of the the kind of like Web2 social networks adopted this kind of like multi-name system. It's just like a single username. And so you kind of solve for two things is you, you don't have the complexity of having to do everything on chain. And then as it relates to the kind of federated model, you don't have this identity that is kind of tied to a server. And I know there are some attempts at potentially trying to to make the identity not associated with a single server in uh, kind of the federated model of things. But that's still TBD. And the more I hear about that, the more I'm saying, hmm, it sounds like you're more and more wanting this neutral place to store the username data that can't be mucked with by any individual company or country. Sounds like a good use for a blockchain. I think where we're going to get to is 
that's either going to work or it's not, and that we'll find out from the market standpoint. I think that the third thing that relates to especially the, the federated systems is the developer experience for building a new app is actually much harder in a federated system. Because if you think about it, something like Mastodon, how many Mastodon servers are there in the world? I don't know, 1,000? Okay, scale it up, 10,000, 100,000. If you want to go build a new Mastodon client, in order to actually provide a good user experience that's on par with Web2, you now have to interface and index data from all of those different servers. There's going to be weird quirks. The idea of getting to global state for the network to answer the question of what's happening, right? That, that's the kind of like primary thing that Twitter does really well, is a lot of work for a developer. Whereas contrast that with a blockchain, yes, you have to put a bunch of stuff on chain and pay, which that has its own set of challenges. The beauty of a blockchain is you do get to global state every time that there's a block confirmation, right? So it's actually a decent developer experience. And so what we've done with Farcaster, we've tried to say, well, if we can avoid the cost of doing stuff on chain, but also have a single kind of global state that like gets to consensus really fast, that's actually going to be a great developer experience. And so we've actually done that with hubs which are kind of just rolling out now. So it took us a couple of years to figure this out, where a hub is kind of like an Ethereum node, but for the Farcaster network, all of the data is stored off-chain, right? So there's there's no no cost from a kind of like per, per transaction. The identity is pulled from the Ethereum blockchain, and all of these hubs are able to sync the entire global state of the network in a pretty short period of time. So as a developer, all I have to do is spin up a new hub in the same way that if I want to build on Ethereum, I just spin up an Ethereum node or use Alchemy or something like that. And then I'm off to the races. Like I can be like, okay, do I want to see Tree Girls cast? Boom. Like that's one API request. Like there is no, oh, what server is she on? Or like, how do I know where are the likes going to each one of her posts? Like where did they come from? Did I, did I actually get to that kind of global state? This just exists in a single server and that's going to be open source. And so we spent a lot of time working on that. And our point of view is the identity system that is sufficiently decentralized mixed with this kind of like great developer experience that powers the underlying network is the optimal model to do. And and we'll see. I mean, it's going to take us probably a few months or years to to figure out which of any of these decentralized social networks will work. And, and maybe the revealed preference three years from now is that people don't actually care and they just care about, you know, their audience size on Twitter. And that's fine. I still think it's worth doing. And I'm optimistic, but, uh, you know, I'm also realistic in the sense that it's like we're only going to find out by by trying. Yeah, I mean, I certainly hope that isn't the future we're looking at is where people still commit to Twitter above all else and don't see the benefit of these decentralized social protocols. But I think even as it stands today, I mean, I personally haven't really used Mastodon or Blue Sky much, but having used Farcaster and Lens quite a bit, I think it seems to me like the audience segments on both platforms are already a little bit different, where it seems to me like Lens has really optimized for growth and kind of just trying to like onboard as many people as possible and contrasting that to Farcaster where the barrier to entry into Farcaster has been a bit higher and maybe that is intentional on your part in curating a higher quality group of people. And that's, you know, I think when people think about growth strategies, I think those are kind of like the two competing strategies and rehash, we've really gone with the the quality over quantity, like slow growth strategy as well, where we really wanted to build a community slowly and start small with a group of people who really understood what we were doing, what we were all about and aligned with our values, 
before we expand it out to the public. Because especially in a space like crypto, like Web3, you get a lot of people who are just in it for the quick flip, one token, a lot of the spammers. And that was something that we tried to avoid. And it kind of seems to me, you know, and tell me if I'm on point with this at all, or if I'm totally off, but it seems to me like Farcaster kind of had that similar strategy of trying to grow slowly and intentionally to build a solid user base before expanding out to more of the mainstream. Yeah, so I, I think we've been intentional with our growth strategy for a couple of reasons. So there's there's a basic practical reason. We're on testnet still, and we need to migrate to mainnet next year. So every user that we have sign up one way or another, we have to actually pay. We're, we're going to do the migration for the beta users to mainnet. So we're, we're actually paying for people to, to move to mainnet. So there's a little bit of, in our mind, that it's, it's not free. We're going to actually pay. And I, so I think that that mentality is useful because I also think it feeds into the second point, which I think when you, you're starting an early social network, you're, you're still trying to actually figure out norms of that social network and then the product surface area that need to kind of like match those norms. And if you grow too fast you run into two issues. One, and this actually kind of applies to companies, and I, and I kind of saw this a little bit at Coinbase when we were scaling quite a bit in, in 2017, 2018, is when you're a small company and people have been there for a while, people kind of know what the culture is and the norms and, and how things get done. But then if you get in kind of this hyper-growth mode, the percentage of new people, so define that as like people who are new to the company within the last three months, at any given time starts to get something like crazy. It's like 30% of the employee base at, at Coinbase during that kind of period of growth was new. And because so many people are new, you start to deviate away from what made the company and culture potentially successful before. And naturally, and this is not blame, it's just how people work, is if you don't know what kind of the new norm and culture for that company is, you're going to just bring it in from whatever company you came in from before, Google, Microsoft, whatever. Similar with the social network. If we grow really, really fast with Farcaster and you don't have enough time to kind of like marinate and, and really understand like, oh, this is how people do things here. What you're basically going to import is the culture of Twitter, which we, we can say there are some good things about Twitter and there are plenty of bad things about Twitter. And so I think where we wanted to be deliberate was in, in kind of just keeping, it's not like we haven't been onboarding people. It's just like onboard cohorts of people, a couple hundred people a week. And then A, let it settle with, with the existing culture of the network. And then similarly, th- there's a, another thing that I think is really important is consumers, you know, it's, it's funny, people tend to like pretend consumers are somehow dumb or sheep or whatever when they refer to them for products. But I actually think consumers are really sophisticated. And so what they do is they're going to make a snap judgment about that onboarding experience, that initial kind of first few minutes they play around with the app. And then that, that's going to be kind of like seared into their brain. And when they think of, they hear the word forecast or whatever that first two minutes of using the app. And if you try to grow as fast as possible, then all of a sudden you have all these things that are kind of broken just because you haven't gotten around to polishing them up. And you have this culture that's not solidified enough. And so you actually, I think, burn through a ton of potential people who, if they had come in maybe a more deliberate and slow manner, might have actually found whatever product or social network you're building really engaging. And so I think where we've approached it is we have to move it to mainnet at some point. So like there's kind of this constraint of like, don't grow too, too fast for it. And while doing that, try to figure out what the culture of Farcaster is and and then again, match the feature set to that. And then the the last point is, is like pay a lot of attention on retention, right? So it's it's like, if you have a couple hundred people joining a week, you you have enough data to, to kind of see, it's like, okay, well, what percentage of those people come back 
on the the kind of next day or or day seven or day 30 and, and really try to hold yourself to a, a bar where you're not saying, oh, this is good for crypto. Like, no, no, no. Like, we, we should be building a social network that's as good as a Web2 social network with the additional friction of having to create a username on chain. So it's like, that's the only way you're actually ever make something that's competitive with like a Web2 network is you're not competing against Web3 stuff. Actually, attention is is a zero-sum game and people are already using the Web2 stuff. So you actually need to build something so compelling that they're willing to reduce the amount of time they're spending somewhere else to spend in Europe. So so like just approaching it like that for us means there's just a ton of work to do and, you know, growth at all, by all means, early on is is not what we're focused on. It's it's can we actually sustainably continue to grow and build something that people find actually really valuable? And if we do that over the course of two years or so, I think we can get to a place where when we do kind of shift maybe a little bit more, more on a how can we grow this network to be as big as possible, a lot of those basics are really well-defined and handled in, in that kind of first user experience in the app. I really like what you said about how you're competing with Web2 social apps and not actually Web3. And I think this is something that a lot of Web3 builders, not just in the social space, but across the board, tend to forget. I think people in Web3 tend to build for their friends who are also in Web3 and forget that, you know, like the majority of people out there are still very much living in a Web2 world and and haven't gotten there yet. So I just wanted to double underline that part of what you said. We did get a ton of questions from the community, from Twitter and from Warpcast. So I'm going to go through some of our community questions and see how, how many we can get through with the time we have left. The first one comes from Sai Winther Tamaki from Warpcast says, are there any apps you haven't built because of Apple's app store restrictions. And that's something that you had mentioned earlier in our conversation. And then I'm just going to tack onto that and ask, you know, what other apps have been built on Farcaster so far other than Warpcast, if any. And then I know you've also got a list of, I think about 50 app ideas that you have to be built on Farcaster that you would love to see be built. So I, I'd also be curious to hear like which of those ideas you're most excited about and then like what's the call to any devs listening about how they can go about building an app on Farcaster? Well, for any devs listening to the call and if you're not on Farcaster, if you send me a DM on Twitter, DWR, and you use the word Arizona, uh, it's just like a keyword I use to search. So to find people who made the proof of work through the podcast. I'm happy to give you a Farcaster invite. So... Going back to the Apple, I think Apple has some pretty strict restrictions on, on two things that I think in the scheme of things would be beneficial to the Farcaster ecosystem. So the first is like the idea of having an app store within an app store, right? Like we want to actually surface more apps that are being built within the Farcaster ecosystem from our own app, Warpcast. But if it looks like a, an app store in your app, Apple doesn't like that. So I think we're, we have to be a little bit more thoughtful about how we do that. One other way we can do that is desktop and web, which are not in an app store. So, you know, maybe that, that's one way to approach it. But I would, I, would, I would love the ability to actually showcase other apps in the ecosystem in a way that kept Apple happy. But that's the rule for now. I think a second one is just NFTs are pretty tricky because I think currently they fall under the in-app purchase digital good categorization, similar to like, you know, buying gold tokens in a game. I think if you're more sophisticated, you kind of realize that that's not the case, but that's the rule. And so I think that there are probably some NFT features that we would be excited about adding if, if the, the rules allowed it. I think on the just like general ecosystem, so 
last year at this time, I think we had like maybe one or two people who had just tinkered with something on top of the Farcaster protocol. And a year before that, it was just us. Whereas I think now we're at a point where, you know, we have dozens of, of apps to different degrees of sophistication, a lot of just kind of like weekend projects, people scratching an itch, playing around with the data. And then I, I actually just mentioned this to the team today. There are three venture-backed teams now working within the Farcaster ecosystem, which, you know, for a year-over-year growth, that, that's like pretty good from a developer ecosystem. So I think that the level of sophistication and or resources that that are starting to be invested in Farcaster apps is growing, which is exciting. But what one thing that's neat about a protocol is that it, you don't have to have venture-backed money or, or sophistication. Like if you if you have an idea for an app, you can just go build it. And, and maybe, maybe the audience of that might be only, you know, you or 10 people, but you can still do it. And you don't have to worry about us coming around and doing what Twitter did is, oh, okay, API is now paid. Like you need to pay me to do it. Like, so if you want to create a bot that just kind of does something, I don't know, irreverent or, or, or silly, great, go for it. And so I think that that is an important characteristic of a permissionless network is you can have a whole range of different size and sophistication of teams, and, and that's completely fine. And if anything, that like I think what makes a network like Farcaster or a protocol like Farcaster special is that irreverent, like, you know, single developer who just had a wacky idea on a weekend. And sometimes those things turn into something way bigger or, or they don't, and it doesn't matter. And so the thing I tried to do recently, because I have a lot of people like, oh, I want to build this or that. And I, I kind of wanted to just, as an exercise, broaden the horizons of like, what could you be building on top of Farcaster? And I, I put a post together, it was about 50 ideas, and, and I was pretty clear. It's like lightly edited, haven't really thought too, too much about each of these. They might not even be good, you know, app ideas and or business ideas. Don't don't like come back to me and say, no one used the product. Why did you give me that idea? But it was more about like, I think naturally when you build on something new, you kind of look to see what's working. And, and in our case, like we have this app that looks very similar to Twitter. And so I think a lot of the initial apps have been kind of Twitter-like. But I do think we're starting to see people working on different form factors. And, and again, maybe clones of other existing social networks that they know work, like something that looks like Instagram stories or a B-Real equivalent. But I think where you get to, and, and this happens with any new technology, is the initial set of people tinkering around tend to be a little bit more skeuomorphic of what existed before, right? Like the original way of putting information on the internet for a traditional publisher was like, we're going to try to make this look like a magazine, whereas obviously today, like a web page has a distinct look versus printed media. And so I think it just takes some time as people need to kind of like be using the apps and or the protocol for some period of time where they can actually start to develop that more native mechanism for that new kind of primitive technology. And I think a, a good example of this in, in Ethereum and in DeFi, early Ethereum, the kind of like bet for decentralized exchanges was something like 0x, right? Which actually, if you look at the the kind of way things are architected there, you had a bunch of these other clients that got built on top of 0x. Coinbase actually bought one in 2018. I think it was Paradex. And basically the idea was you were going to have these like order books or whatever, and you could kind of do these trades. And it didn't really gain any liquidity. And then a few years later, you got to Uniswap, which was actually a fundamentally new model but you kind of realized that the AMM model, given the constraints of a blockchain, is actually like a superior way to, to do some of this. And obviously, it's been phenomenally successful. And so I think that's like the, the thing I'm excited about is like what people are building today is like, it's kind of like a necessary part of the evolution of a protocol. But where, where I get really excited is just thinking about two or three years from now, 
the completely and wacky new ideas that people are going to be trying out that in aggregate, a bunch of them probably fail, but maybe a few of them work or they actually fundamentally find some new social primitive or, or way of expressing, you know, just human creativity that maybe takes off. And and so I get excited about the idea that you as a developer don't have to ask anyone permission to start building a forecaster. Like if, if, you, if you're inspired at, I don't know, 10 p.m. on a Friday and you want to work the whole way, way through the weekend on, on some new concept, you can. Whereas Twitter API for a while, for the last you know 10 years, is like you have to wait for them to give you an API token and then they're going to rate limit you. And like it's, it's just like all those little pieces of friction add up. And so I think getting to a place where it's just like you and a keyboard and an internet connection, go. Like th- th- that's that's what I'm I'm really excited about. Amazing. We are coming up on time, so I'm going to throw a couple of random non-Farcaster-related questions at you from the community, and then we're going to wrap up with the game that we conclude every episode with. So uh, the first sort of random question I've got from the community, this comes from, uh, I'm going to screw up your name, I'm so sorry, Shripani Palakodetti wants to know, what would you major in in college if you were just graduating high school this year? Computer science. Okay. Is that what you actually majored in? I was an English major, so I, wow, regret, okay. I regret I regret that as a as a major. So I would major in computer science. Okay, cool. Hades from Warp, Warpcast wants to know: Do you not like memes anymore? I don't know if this is in reference to something that I'm missing, but what are your thoughts on memes? Uh, I still like memes. Um, just been busy the last couple of weeks with uh, you know the the whole SVB blow up last Friday. You like. So normally there's a meme Friday on Farcaster, and I didn't do it last Friday. Uh, okay, time. okay, okay. So we're gonna we're gonna do it this Friday. Okay, well, Coming yeah. Hades doesn't blow up. How about that? Hades was really upset about that, so um, so make sure just for Hades' sake that you know we do another meme Friday. And then last one on a scale of one to ten, how happy do you feel with your life? This comes from Les Grace. I think eight and a half. That's pretty good. Yeah, I have a, a wonderful family. I feel really blessed, and health is something that easy to take for granted. Um, yeah, eight and a half. That's a great answer. I actually love that question. I think I'm going to start asking all of my guests that question just to do a little mental health check and make sure everybody's doing okay. Cool. So I've got, let me grab this. Um, I wrap up every episode with the word association game. I'm sure yep. you've played this before at some point, but basically I'm going to say a word and I've got a box of words here. There's probably like 50 slips of paper in here. And these are often misused or overused words in Web3. And I'm going to say a word and you say the first word that comes to mind. Got 10 of these. It should take us less than 60 seconds if all goes well. Great. Okay, cool. So first one, governance. Nouns. Community. Nouns. Okay, so the uh, the not to censor. Oh, okay. FWB. Okay, yeah. So no, don't don't repeat. Don't, don't repeat. repeat the word I say or the word that you yeah, already yeah. said. Um, ownership economy. NFTs. Merkle tree. Vitalik. Permissionless. Farcaster. Concentric circles. Growth. Media. Bankless. Dow. Maker. Layer two. Optimism. <laughs> Substrate. Jacob Horn. <laughs> I like how you just chose a proper noun for each word that yeah. 
that was said. That's a good strategy. Good job. Yeah. That went through, that went exactly how it was supposed to go. Sometimes it doesn't go so smoothly. Uh, thank you so much, Dan, for coming on the podcast, giving us your time. I learned so much and I, I'm sure our listeners did as well. Last thing before you go, tell people where they can find you if they want to follow you personally. I'll also remind people of the secret word to DM you with if they would like a forecaster invite. And then also feel free to plug away at anything else, anything else you want people to check out or take a look at, share all the, all the links, all the handles. Yeah, look, just send me in a direct message on Twitter. It's the easiest way to contact me uh, for now. Uh, DWR. I'm the little pirate. I look at all of my DMs. Uh, and I think if you don't have a Farcaster invite, Arizona. But even if you do and or have feedback, um, I, I try to engage in good faith with everybody. So uh, if you have thoughts and, and reasons you think you would use Farcaster if there's something different about it, I'm, I'm open to that. Amazing. Cool. And then don't forget to check Farcaster on Fridays for Meme Fridays if you like memes. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. And we will be back again next Thursday with another episode of Rehash. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Rehash. Rehash is hosted by Diana Chen, produced and edited by Ellie Dots and Tyler Internet, and sponsored by Lens, Empire Wallet, and NFT.Storage. Rehash is also supported by Rehash DAO, a community of NFT holders who curate our guest lineup each season. To get involved, head over to our website at rehashweb3.xyz and collect this episode as an NFT. Anyone who collects an episode becomes a part of Rehash DAO and will be able to nominate guests for future seasons. Voting rights are reserved for our guests, sponsors, and OG crowdfund supporters. And to learn more about how to become a guest or sponsor, go to rehashweb3.xyz slash podcast. Finally, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok at RehashWeb3 or on Lens at Rehash.Lens.